Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. As always, I am your host, Nico Perino, and today I am in FIRE's DC headquarters, and I'm joined by FIRE's president and CEO, Greg Lukianoff. Greg, welcome back on the show. Hey, it's been a while. Last time we talked with you was about coddling in the American mind. Yep. It was just getting ready to come out. This was last September. And the paperback edition is coming out next month. Paperback coming out in August. Yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty excited about that. Yeah, August 20th. August 20th. I should preface Coddling the American Mind by New York Times bestselling Coddling <laughs> the American Mind because you're on for five weeks, right? Uh, uh, if you count the audiobook, it was on for eight. Yeah, you're on the audiobook bestsellers list as well. It yep. sold close well, it, to 200,000 copies at this point. Uh, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually kind of shocked at how well it's doing. I'm like, we're really proud of the book, but I'm like, wow, are, are you sure there's not someone else you should be reading? Yeah, just, especially just kidding, for a nonfiction just kidding, just book. Kidding. It's, it's, uh, we're uh, very proud of it. We're really glad that people are giving it to their um, uh, to, to people at K-12 through level, for example. I've been trying to actually do a lot more outreach to, to, to people at high school levels. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, John did a hell of a job, too, with the, with the audiobook. Um, he's, he's much better. At, at speaking those than I am. <laughs> yeah. And joining me and Greg today is Professor Samuel Abrams, who is a professor at Sarah Lawrence College. He teaches politics and social science. He's also a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a faculty fellow with the New York University Center for Advanced Social Science Research. Professor Abrams. Thanks for having me, and I am very excited about the paperback release. I love the cover; it's a very nice cover. Well, I, we're psyched about it. We have we have a little um, moving GIF of it that, that we just updated of all the all little highlights. Very nice, and I, I couldn't agree more. We really need to get that into the hands of high school students. High school students are pushy, they're aggressive, they're curious, <laughs> and, and and if we can get some of these ideas out to them sooner than later, it's only going to help when they get to freshman well, year or I, first year studies. We already have a, a comic book to try to reach out to uh, y- younger kids, and I'm trying to write my own version of it because I'm a big superhero nerd, sure. and I want to make it a little bit more sort of like superhero-y. Um, but yeah, we're really focused on trying to get kids to understand some of these concepts, some of the philosophy behind freedom of speech really earlier, and also to, to realize part of the idea of the book is that someone who's scheduling you from every single moment of the day and not letting you to develop your own sense of autonomy, they're not really helping you. Right, exactly. And that's why FIRE has launched this, uh, the high school department now. Yep. I mean, we've got the comic book, which you referenced. We've got a curriculum as well. Yep. And we're reaching out to high school teachers. I was about to say faculty. I guess they're faculty as well and going to their conferences and whatnot and trying to get these materials in their hands. Yep. They can be a tough audience, I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, now they can pick up the paperback copy of Coddling the American Mind. I think it's like twelve ninety five or something. Yep, cheaper than the twenty dollars. If you're willing to go on a book tour, that could that could really help. Amazing if you said I'd like to come speak to your your students, or if John were willing to do that. I would like to come it, to speak to your students. It works. It actually works. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Professor Amers, I want to jump right in. Sure. Last October, you wrote an op ed for the New York Times called "Think Professors Are Liberal, Try School Administrators," in which you discuss research that you've done about viewpoint diversity on campus in the past. You've done some research about the ratio between conservative and liberal professors on campus, finding that there's a six to one ratio of liberal to conservative professors. And if you go to New England, it's something like 25 to one. Uh, And you also decided more recently to take a look at administrators. Administrators have a big role on college campuses for better or worse. Uh, And we'll get to that later because that's the topic of a more recent op-ed. But you found that there was a 12 to 1 ratio, liberal to conservative on college campuses. And you say that manifests itself in some of the programming that colleges have put on. You write about how the Office of Student Affairs at Sarah Lawrence Colleges uh, has a lot of programming that probably isn't conservative programming, things like stay healthy, stay woke, microaggressions, understanding white privilege. And you just asked for more diversity. We've done a podcast with you, panel discussion at NYU about this topic. But those uh, of your peers on campus, particularly administrators, some of the students didn't like this. Could, could we take a moment, though, to, to, to talk a little bit more about the actual research and, and the op-ed? Because yeah, let's do it. The op-ed itself was 
excellent and and I thought also at the same time uncontroversial um, and so, so could you talk a little bit more about sure it? so one of the things I, I've been sharing with people about the op-ed is that this was not a one-off piece of work it's not like one day I showed up to work was agitated by the incredibly lopsided political programming on, on campus and said you know what I need to write this piece uh, this op-ed actually represents over a decade's worth of thinking about what is going on on our higher ed campuses and a lot of this stems from the fact that on my second day of work, actually, as a professor, I was invited to a dinner party at the president's house. And I had said, you know, this is a perfect example of the dark side of civic engagement. Uh, this is a term coined by Theta Scotchpole, uh, a progressive uh, sociologist and political scientist, a term that's used widely uh, in the in the academic literature, and it basically refers to the tyranny of the minority. When uh, the web was nascent, uh, you could coordinate sort of small groups of people to have a disproportionately power, you know, large uh, voice in, in shaping policy outcomes. And I remember I, I said this at the t- dinner table, and a trustee of color across the table uh, stopped the conversation, uh, demanded that I repeat myself, which I happily did. And then I was accused of being uh, a racist uh, on my second day of uh, work. Why? Uh, because she took the term dark side of civic engagement to be a racially insensitive comment. Uh, that was my uh, that, that was a tough night. Uh, I, I remember thinking, geez, the job market is in very, very bad shape. Uh, there aren't a whole lot of tenure track jobs. There were about five uh, available in the country for those who study American politics. This is right after uh, the market had crashed and, and basically positions disappeared and uh, they have not recovered uh, all that well around the country since. And I just said, well, maybe my career is over. This is this is awful. You weren't tenured at the time. No, a second day of uh, work yeah. as an assistant professor. I was very excited to be there. And I was excited to have this dinner, this uh, this conversation to talk about what I know. Uh, this has been a position, you know, they really had not had a traditional political scientist on campus at Sarah Lawrence in a while. And, and I had this sort of training and came from a background of inequality and social policy. I was very comfortable talking about it. I uh, did not expect to have to stare down the real possibility that I may be fired or out of a job. The, this trustee had even threatened me by saying I don't really uh, belong at Sarah Lawrence and will not have a job much longer. Uh, flash forward about nine years later. Fortunately, that's not true. But I, I was deeply, deeply upset about that. And uh, I, I said what I had to do to get by. There, there's a literature uh, now in the social sciences about passing on the right where you keep certain things to yourself. You put your head down and you, you just keep your ideas quiet and you tow the company line to the best of your ability and, and you share what you need to share. So since that day, I've been observing things. I mean, that's what I do. I am a political scientist, a social scientist. I want to make sense uh, of the world. And I began to visit as many schools as I could, observe my students, observe faculty, observe administrators and so on, and began to just take notes. And uh, after I earned tenure, I, I said, you know, en- enough is enough. I am trained to figure out and diagnose social problems and describe social phenomena, uh, not necessarily create policy solutions. I'm very happy to do that today. But as a PhD in an ivory tower, policy is a whole separate world. But diagnosing and characterizing them, sure. So uh, after uh, tenure happened, I, I decided to be a little more bold. And I, I started to ask the question of why are things so crazy? with viewpoint diversity on, on our university and college campuses. Why are people afraid to talk? Why is there this madness? And I, I think back to my collegiate life uh, over 20 years ago, and I actually lived in a theme dormitory uh, called Castaño at uh, Stanford University. It was the public policy theme dorm. We could talk Woo-hoo! about anything under Go the Cardinal. sun. Absolutely. We talked about everything and anything under the sun. I remember staying up late till two or three in the morning some nights, having these heated dialogues to understand other people's viewpoints. And, you know, I was very happy to share mine as a, uh, an East Coast raised Jewish guy. Uh, and argue with folks who may have been of uh, Latino descent who had family from Mexico. And it was great. And I treasure those days. And I realized these things are not happening anymore. So the op-ed that, that you for- thankfully uh, reference is actually, again, the culmination of then this research. I started by trying to make sense of, is it the students? Are our students going crazy? What's going on? And yes, there's some of that, and, and uh, you have that in your, your wonderful book talking about the generational switch and some of the coddling issues and, of course, the iGen, however you want to talk about yep. it. It's, it's all there. Uh, read the book. It's really important. Uh, or the Atlantic article, but it, it, it's all in there. And I spent a lot of time surveying uh, students and, and doing interviews with students, and I realized it's not really the students. The students are definitely ideological, but 
uh, they're actually interested in having fun. They're interested in being pushed. And a fair number of them are actually quite comfortable being uh, asked about things that are seemingly uncomfortable uh, to the outside world. They want to be asked. They want to talk. They want to share. And uh, if you look at uh, ideological data over time, you realize that today's undergraduate population is actually less ideologically leftist and progressive than it was in the 60s. Uh, it's about two to one. That's oh, about it. It's, it's not extremely to the left. And the, the modal distribution, i.e. the largest group in the middle uh, or largest group of students are actually undecided in the middle. And they're very comfortable there as they enter college. Now, of course, I think that may be changing as they, they leave college due to socialization, but they enter fairly balanced and they enter fairly curious. So it's not the students. And I began to think more and more and said, well, what about the faculty? We always hear about faculty, whether, uh, you know, I did my graduate work up in, in, in Cambridge and you hear about people like Noam Chomsky all the time and you think, geez, is, it the, is this a faculty artifact? Well, the reality is faculty have moved sharply to the left in the last two decades and the harm studies, uh, basically these interdisciplinary, intersectional sort of uh, departments from uh, women and gender studies to race and ethnicity studies, if you look at them, they aren't, and I call them harm studies along with a lot of other folks, because if you look at what they're about, it's not just ivory tower academia at all. It's about doing something under the guise of it being academic and then actually going out into the real world and, and taking uh, a position with it. Now, I don't mind if faculty want to do that on their own time, but uh, I proudly do believe that, you know, the academy is the academy. We keep it that way and then you can step out into another role. But if you look at a lot of the mission statements of these departments, they see scholarship as activism. I see scholarship as the search for the tr for truth. And there's a big intellectual distinction there. And I surveyed faculty and I spent a lot of time doing that work. And you realize that, yes, they're absolutely outliers. And there are large numbers of, of, of faculty members who are very attitudinal on both the left and the right. They're very loud. They get a lot of noise. But the average faculty member wants to go home. The average <laughs> faculty member wants to spend time with his or her family. The average faculty member is more concerned with publishing. And that's not necessarily a virtue because we're talking about publishing to 20 other people and looking like you're a big fish <laughs> in a very small pond. Not so sure that's a great thing either. But the average faculty member is not that interested in indoctrinating his or her students. Uh, moreover, even when they are uh, fairly progressive, one of the things that came out from this research is that they do take the idea of intellectual diversity fairly seriously. I looked at hundreds of syllabi and, and people who are out there as very left and people who are out there as very right. They have balance on their syllabus and they take that seriously. I remember when I earned my PhD and it was conferred, uh, the president then of Harvard said, you know, we give this to you with the rights, responsibilities and privileges. And I, I, I know that sounds a little hokey, but we actually believe that. And I think we like that. I, I, I have long believed in saying, you know, I may have my position, but here are five others. And that's our job to make sure you know what that is. So I realized, yes, faculty are a problem, but they're not the problem. Uh, so I'll never forget a couple of years ago, I, I sat... Uh, in our main auditorium at Sarah Lawrence for an all-hands-on-deck sort of meeting when they invite all the staff and all the faculty. And I got there a little early because my train had gotten in early. And I'm sitting there, and I'm just watching people file in. And I'm looking for faculty. Couldn't see them. Many didn't show up. I saw maybe a handful of people I knew. And it's a small school. I, I know my, my colleagues. But this never-ending stream of folks I had never met came in more and more. And I'm like, who are these people? And you realize, oh, my goodness, this is the bloat. This is the never-ending bloat and growth of the administrative state that we talk about. So I realized, wait a minute, there's a whole other pillar in higher ed that we're not talking about, and that's this administrative class. So the purpose of the op-ed was twofold. To first, highlight very clearly that there is an administrative class that is controlling everything from new student orientation to residential life to student success to student affairs. They are not confined to the same rules that we are intellectually and ideologically and, and pedagogically. And they control so much about the day-to-day -day experience of our, of our students. And then realizing that, I, I surveyed them. I surveyed 9,400-ish, uh, uh, got about 10% response rate, which is great. And uh, I, I asked these administrators all about themselves. And you realize that our students are taught by fairly liberal faculty, uh, but I think they're still fairly balanced. And then I realized they're being indoctrinated and socialized by extremely progressive liberal administrators when they're outside of the classroom. And that's the bulk of the time that students have on college and university campuses. So I wrote the op-ed to highlight that, to highlight this new pillar and to say, not only do we have this pillar, but this pillar is out of whack with the rest of the, the country. It's out of whack with the ideological leanings of both faculty 
and students. And I, I picked um, the Sarah Lawrence case because I know it well. You, you look at what the programming is and you realize, geez, it's not just ideological and it's a monoculture that's a progressive ideology, mono, a progressive monoculture, but it's, an, it's promoting activism. And it's promoting certain forms of behavior. And you have to ask yourself, is that really what we should be doing? Is this the place and are these the spaces for that? And uh, that's, that's the research here. This is, it's very important to mention, and I thank you, Greg, for asking it, that this was not a knee-jerk reaction. This was a serious, thoughtful, multi-year research project that was done uh, with other research partners. The great University of Chicago's National Opinion Research Center uh, did the field work for me. Uh, they're a great group of people. Uh, this went through all of their vetting processes very deliberately. It was done to be as reputable as possible because I knew whatever was going to come of it would be controversial. People would want to ask about it. And, and that's that. And meanwhile, you know, I, I, I read this and I, my first book was called Unlearning Liberty. And it's all one of the things that we are sort of screaming in the world is that most of the abuses we see of free speech on campus come from actually administrators. And at that time, actually, the students were completely fine. Like they were actually the best constituency on campus. I say this ad nauseum right. until about 2013, 2014. Where the, that's where basically the book is really trying to figure out what was different between Generation Z, which we've, we've kind of given up on iGen to, to, right. to, 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 to a degree. But, it, but the administrators have always played such an important role. And I've seen other uh, other you know rough surveys talking about uh, how, how much the uh, how ideologically um, tilted administrators are, which is also obvious given a lot of their jobs is very much to go out and train students, quote unquote, train students um, in things that are highly ideological. And we talk about uh, talk about unlearning liberty, this crazy program at University of Delaware, um, which was one of the most horrible things I've right. seen in my life. Completely no no concern about the search for truth. Very much treat students like vessels who have to have truth banged into them. Right. Um, but so, you know, I I read this. I, I think it's should be completely uncontroversial. And then... And then according to the Phoenix, which is the student newspaper yes, there... Yes, which I question how much of a newspaper it is. It rarely publishes articles. They're going to hate me for this, so I expect to be in the midst of a tweet storm after this. But they don't do a whole lot of original reporting. And, and really? Ironically, Sarah Lawrence I is a school that claims that it promotes writing, research, and journalism. And there's take a look. There's content on the main homepage that's many years old at this oh, point. Oh, really? Interesting. And, well, I followed, uh, the, I followed the Twitter discussion sure. about the sit-in that happened sure. at the president's office. And they say part of this was prompted by your op-ed, which they say, quote, got negative attention. Is that an understatement? Uh, so the op-ed got negative attention. What, what, I, I don't know what you mean when you say negative attention. <laughs> well, it probably means uh, that your door got vandalized. Sure, it did. That the students called for your tenure to be reviewed by other students. They did, and which will by, never happen. By a, a panel of faculty of color. Yes. What was life like? Tell me about the fallout here. I actually was quite emboldened by it, believe it or not. I was hoping that Sarah Lawrence wouldn't be the ideal case study to push back on free speech, but it ended up being a great case study to push back here. Uh, you know, I up up until the publication of the op-ed, I had received teaching awards, uh, pretty much uniformly good teaching evaluations. Uh, the alumni magazine even featured me. Uh, the the issue before this op-ed came out, uh, and my whole goal of promoting viewpoint diversity. Uh, it even uh, referenced the fact that I took a whole group of students to a Donald Trump rally. And uh, that was very important to me uh, because at a place like Sarah Lawrence, it's- They've never it's a, seen it. No, they've never seen it. At a place like Sarah Lawrence, it's Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders in 2016. Uh, there's no possibility you would ever have been exposed to someone on the other side. Uh, Trump was having a rally out uh, on Long Island near Hicksville. Easy to get to. I knew it was a fairly safe uh, place to do it. So I wanted my students to see it. I wanted them to understand who these people were, what they looked like, what they're talking about. And they did. And the school seemed to like all of that. Uh, once the op-ed hit, uh, I, I remember I was out that evening uh, on, a, on a date with my wife. This was uh, one of the first dates we were able to take since the birth of uh, my little one. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And I, thank you. And I just, I, I remember turning on my phone between, I went to a concert between a classical music concert in intermission and the phone basically melted down because there were so many inbound things coming and I wasn't sure what it was, but I knew something bad had happened. Uh, things were said and posted on my door that if it had been for against 
uh, other professors with other demographic backgrounds, it would have been deemed a hate crime. They would have called for a federal investigation. They would have called for Title IX investigations. Uh, things were said about my little boy. Pictures of my little boy wearing a Sarah Lawrence T-shirt were destroyed. Uh, and, and it continued for, for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, I remember I had a choice, and the choice was, do I say nothing and sort of let it blow over, or, or do I take a stand and say, this isn't acceptable. The president needs to call out this behavior. The president has an obligation to reaffirm my rights to free speech, my rights to, to publish, uh, and to condemn this sort of behavior, as we see happen at a number of other institutions. Uh, the president did not do this. She eventually did it after uh, quite a bit of public shaming, I believe. But uh, her immediate knee-jerk reactions, and they're all online, you can read them, is uh, to support the students and their behavior and to ask me why I wrote it, to ask me why I didn't review the work with her and clear it with her, which I absolutely wouldn't do. And she intimated that uh, I probably should go find another job, that people like me are not welcome at a place like Sarah Lawrence College. Uh, Of course, I reject that uh, position entirely. Did you have any expectation that this sort of response would occur? I expected there to be some frustration and some uh, annoyance about it. I also expected the school to take the right position, which is you support free speech. Historically, they did that during the McCarthy era. (laughs) Uh, It's enshrined in our values. We may be a private institution, but if you look at our mission statements and everything we have about mutual respect, this sort of behavior is explicitly not not, uh, appropriate. And what I expected uh, the school to do, uh, and of course they, they failed, was to say, we don't agree with uh, Professor Abrams's characterization, but there may be something to it. Uh, let's think about it. Let's look at, is he right with how he described the programming? Call me out and call me wrong, but it's been many, many, many months. I've yet to be uh, called wrong for, for my characterization or, uh, of both Sarah Lawrence and the larger academic world on this. Uh, and they, they could have said to me, uh, you know, again, we may disagree with your interpretation, but the fact that you're raising this means that we have a problem. And we are not being true to what we care about as a, as an institution that values the search for truth and open inquiry. Uh, they did none of those things. To, to basically be asked, again, why did I write it? Why didn't I clear it? Like I'm going to be censored by uh, anybody for this. And suggesting that I have no place at the college despite the fact I'm a tenured faculty member is inexcusable. So, uh, so the thing that just so blazingly um – clear to me, uh, or I should just say that it seems somewhat fishy here, is that I, you know, I've seen a lot of cases where if you dig a little bit, it turns out actually administrators were actually encouraging the behavior. Uh, you know, I think about the, we, we, uh, 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 Nico and I were involved in a movie called Can We Take a Joke that dealt with Chris Lee, whose play was overrun by people shouting they're offended and then shouting death threats. And it actually right. turned out administrators had bought the tickets, organized the students, tell sure. them to stand up and shout, I'm offended. And they didn't tell them to shout death threats, but nonetheless, what do you think is going to happen? Sure. And we so we see we see a lot of this all the time, but this one just seems so blazingly clear. That's kind of like so. I mean, let me see if I'm understanding this. Someone wrote an article <laughs> in the New York Times, very well researched, saying that administrators might actually be you know a part of the problem that we, problems that we see on campus, and then just completely independently, all these students become incredibly outraged because they were so dearly attached to administrators. It, it all just seems way too fishy. I, I think it is fishy. And- and uh, case in point, the school allegedly conducted an investigation. Mm-hmm. I've never heard anything about that investigation. An investigation into what? It, what who happened? did this work? How was it happening? Uh, from the vandalism of vandalism your door. Okay. and all that. And, and, you know, it's interesting. After the first night, it, it didn't end. Uh, we have boards, sure, which they yeah. call the free speech boards. And things went up. I was accused of, of, of sexual harassment and sexual assault. That stuff stayed up for a little bit. They eventually took it down because I think they had to. They knew that's defamation. But... They refused to try to figure out who did it. Um, uh, to, to Greg's point, which is pretty remarkable, we know because they've admitted this and it's in, in uh, various Twitter feeds that the administrators gave the students the various supplies to paint those signs. Oh, my God. Uh, and I'm sure. I didn't know I'm that. Sh- And I'm sure that they could have figured out what it was. But this is one of those cases where they claim to do it, but they're not really going to do it in my, in my, in my judgment. And uh, it's, it's very clear 
that uh, the president and the faculty members are scared. Well, what's interesting is this is the thing that indicates to me, like like any, any good detective novel, that looks like you're on to something. Yes. Um, and one of the reasons why well, Fire is trying to step up our, our, our polling um, efforts. We had some very successful polls in the past couple of years. I'm really interested in this. It's really fun working with well, someone, let's work like, together and do more of it. someone like Height. And yes, and just finding out more about how, how deep this goes. And when you look at some of the stuff that I, that we fight on campus, one of the things that I that, that we've I've been pushing lately are, are this list of five things you can ask any professor, uh, any university president to do to fix, fix free speech. And of course, the first one is stop violating the law. But also in there is freaking talk about free speech and um, uh, and academic freedom in um, uh, orientation. This is yes. basic stuff. But one thing we're also we say in it is like make sure the faculty does this. Right. Um, and because right now I think actually mostly they're being taught um, really kind of like just bad things about free speech. They hear they hear about harassment. They hear about um, hate speech. Sometimes they hear about microaggressions. Nobody's actually no, nobody's actually given them the the inspiring at least extended philosophical explanation of the sophistication of academic freedom of the idea of, of opening your mind and not becoming and prejudged it seems like there's people on campus whose full-time job is to make is to sort of coax people into prejudging a little more so i, I agree and to, to nico's point that's why i i was uh not I, i'm trying to come up with the right word here i wouldn't say happy is the right word i wouldn't say gratifies the right word i was not surprised that this all happened uh, i figured it very well may it was certainly something that i i very much considered and I think it validated. I felt validated. I think that's the right word. I would say I felt validated after writing this because they confirmed and, and to Grace's point, reinforced <laughs> everything I was saying and those dangers uh, of, of everything I was saying. And uh, if you take a look at some of the things that were written about the, my situation in particular, uh, faculty couldn't coordinate to write uh, to issue a statement in support of free speech and in support of academic freedom. They were afraid to do it. The few that did, it was very, very weak. And uh, Nico had also mentioned the uh, the sit-in later. There were greater numbers of faculty, 41 ultimately. Uh, and we're talking about 100 faculty or so. So that's a significant number, mm-hmm. uh, 100 faculty all in and that are, are basically there regularly. Uh, almost 40% of them uh, supported the student's demand list. faculty of the whole school? Yes. Now, we have a large number of adjuncts and uh-huh. part-timers because we're in New York. We take advantage of having folks who may want to teach a course here and there. That That's great. But in terms of full-time core faculty, it's, it's not very large, yep. like most liberal arts colleges. And greater numbers of, of, of faculty signed on to support the student's ridiculous demands, including getting rid of me and, and not having tenure, you know, and, and having my tenure questioned, then supporting my right to have written that op-ed. Was this the 90 demands one? It was. Oi. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Sure, let's do it. Because your op-ed was written in October. Yes. And you weren't on campus, or you weren't on campus the next semester, I right? was on campus in the fall. Uh, I, I was, um, you know, happy to be there. I, I, I repeatedly, incidentally, reached out to the school saying, you know, you need to get control of this. You need to get control of this because I don't want a Christakis-style situation to occur up uh, that we, that happened at Yale to occur yeah. here. Uh, the school was not all that interested. So I carried uh, my phone ready to videotape anything that happened and deliberately avoided certain people, uh, spaces and, and places. I felt very much under house arrest, if you will. But uh, I taught and I refused to stop teaching and, and my classes went fine. Incidentally, um, my, it was the first time in almost nine years of teaching that I had negative uh, teaching reviews. I uh, remember one of the evenings I took my class to see To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, it, was only t- it was fairly tangential to the course, but it was, a, it was an extracurricular activity that was not during school time. And one of the reviews actually complained that the, the play, which was fantastic, had not enough to do with the class itself. So why did we have to go? Uh, I did not force anyone to do that, but th- this is the type of uh, world we live in at the moment. Uh, I was not there in, 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 in the spring due to a prearranged leave that had been arranged many, many uh, months prior to any of this actually surfacing. It worked out nicely. Yeah, so there was the backlash right after op-ed was written, and then in March Happened is when again. these two days of sit-ins at the president's office So occurred. it's longer than two days. It was well over a week and a half. Oh, was it half. really? Yes. Okay. I, my facts are wrong on that one. But the students... It's called the Diaspora Coalition yes. that occupied the president's office, put together a list list of demands. And among them, of course, are the things that we discussed. Uh, the students said that the college must issue a statement condemning the harm that Abrams has caused to the college community, specifically queer, black, and female students, whilst apologizing for its refusal to protect marginalized students wounded by his op-ed and the ignorant dialogue that followed. Mm-hmm. They said uh, Abrams must also issue a public apology to the broader college community and cease to target black people, queer people, and women. Uh, but they went on 
to demand uh, in their nine-page list of demands some things that caught the headlines. For example, they demanded free winter housing with a communal kitchen containing, quote, dry goods from the food pantry, unquote, free laundry detergent and fabric softener for all students. The fabric softener made international news. Yes, it did. It's funny because just before this came out, my dad was telling me that millennials don't purchase fabric softener. And so fabric softener companies are having a hard time dealing with that. But that's- So they should call Sarah Lawrence and thank them for it. I guess there are some millennials or Gen Z Z maybe is picking it back up. Uh, They also demanded a mandatory first year orientation session about quote, intellectual elitism. And uh, they also demanded all students have unlimited access to therapy sessions. Greg, I want to bring you in here because a lot of the stuff kind of speaks to the trends that you were talking about in Coddling the American Mind, even even the free speech tenure stuff aside. Yeah, no, it, it, it's always really um, uh, kind of uh, disappointing to see some of the things that John and I predicted when we actually see them in action. Um, it, there's so many threads in the book uh, that are present here. We have a whole chapter, by the way, that's kind of tucked more at the end of the book that talks about the problem of the massively expanding uh, bureaucracy on campus um, and, and how this creates a lot of the problems that sometimes don't fit uh, um, fit with some people's kind of preconceived notions of what free speech controversy is supposed to look like um, on, on campus. But it's just so it, it's so particularly misplaced to see complaints about like how on earth is saying that administrators tilt in one direction an attack on students of color on campus. It just seems like they were trying to figure out some way to some something that the university could never uh, say. No, that that isn't that isn't true. I, and this is why I think administrators played a very he- heavy hand in it. I think they were very excited to finally have a scapegoat, which yeah. is me, uh, and to use me as as a symbol. One of the things I, I would mention with some of these demands are quite a few of them are illegal. For instance, they yeah, wanted sure. they wanted things like uh, single racial housing, which yeah. is which is not going to work. Uh, segregated I'm, housing. Segregated housing. And I, I thought about. Uh, a number of other things like uh, mental therapy. Yeah, uh, I believe most of our students have uh, health insurance yeah. uh, through their families, or and I believe they're required to buy it. Um, yeah. If if that's all true, there are many. You know, we're right outside of New York. There are many, many therapists. Yeah. Whatever happened to taking responsibility for your own needs and saying? I, you know, if I need therapy, let's go get that. Well, we can go do that. Um, and then not to, and then finally, just have to jump in here and say. If this is the sort of language that they are using, that this group, by the way, which is anonymous, yeah, you know, at no oh. point would they uh, allow themselves to be uh, identified. I, I don't know who wrote this. Uh, and incidentally, if you look at some of the demands made against me, it's not clear who would pick and how it would occur. I mean, they want me to negotiate with, it, with, with, with something that sounds substantively like a terrorist group. Uh, it's mm-hmm. an amorphously defined group of people. But we do know the faculty who signed on it. To it, right? The 41 faculty members? I've oh. been trying to figure out who those 41 faculty members are. I'd oh, love to have you conversations. Don't, you don't with actually know who I they do are? I do not, no. Oh, my God. But, uh, you know, the, the thing that scares me the most about some of these demands are, are this. Uh, and I have a lot of problems with Sarah Lawrence and, and our president and how she behaved toward me. But I will say this. Sarah Lawrence is one of the most open, supportive, tolerant communities I have ever had the pleasure of, of being in. This is a community that tries to uh, give everyone voice, tries to be as empathetic and understanding. If this level of vitriol is being thrown at a, a school that is bending over backwards to embrace all forms of that diversity, except, of course, ideological and political diversity, then I can only imagine what's going to happen to some of these students when they see what the real world is like. Sarah Lawrence is so far ahead of the curve on this one and is trying to be so supportive of these students. But the sort of vitriol and negativity and the attacks on the people who are just trying to be helpful, I, I found that very short-sighted and, and, and poorly thought through. Well, yeah, and one of the things that, um, you know, probably the most surprising thing we found in, in, in researching how the American mind was how bad the situation was for mental health for um, students in, in this age cohort. But one of the things that I find really perverse is we know students are coming in already anxious, anxious and depressed. The idea of telling them that you're under threat from yes. an op-ed from the New York Times, it's kind of like th- this creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and you know, when I really sum up what, uh, what our book is about, it's saying um, we shouldn't be shocked that we our students feel anxious depressed and polarized when we're teaching them all the all the mental habits of anxious depressed and polarized people and like there and, and this is you know what we, what we talk about in cognitive behavioral therapy the idea of catastrophizing and I have to assume that some of these students really have ta- to talk themselves into the idea that they're actually in some way under threat from you yes um, and is that helping a cohort that already has mental health issues so the, I, I, I do actually try to have the, as much compassion as I can for these students as possible. And I think what administrators are doing is in, in, uh, when they sort of work students up into these situations where they, they want to burn the witch is 
really irresponsible in addition to in, inconsistent with free speech and academic freedom. It incidentally makes it impossible to be a teacher and a mentor as well. Sure. Years ago, I, I, one of the things that I loved about working at Sarah Lawrence was the fact that uh, the college was quirky. It had smart students, but they were weird. And I think the school was very proud of embracing that bizarre, weird sort of culture. And I could go out with students for lunches or dinners. We could meet up socially, not socially, but in a social setting. And and I could help them. And a lot of them have done great things since. Uh, and I, I'm so proud of how many folks ended up going to great graduate schools, how many people are here in D.C. I have uh, over 40 students that I still keep in touch with that are currently in and around the district. Uh, and, and that makes me uh, genuinely very happy. This switch that we've seen that, that Greg and John document in, in, in the book uh, and, and that we've seen as teachers has made that almost impossible. I, I am concerned with what it could be like uh, to now try to become close to a student because sometimes you need to get close with a student if you're going to help them. They need to tell you what they're thinking about. You need to understand where they're coming from to then provide that sort of intellectual and professional advice. It's going to be harder than ever for us to do these jobs. If they come in assuming there's some uh, power dynamic that's weird, assuming that there's some intent uh, on my end to harm and, and, and so on, and if I'm evil, it's, it's very hard to do our jobs. And uh, pedagogically, that's hugely disappointing. And, uh, and in terms of promoting real viewpoint diversity, it's going to be very hard. Yeah. Well, this is something that, that, that um, we experienced, both both uh, Nico and I, that really made, left an impression on us just this semester, is I did, you know, I, I do a lot of speaking on campus. I had to cut back a little bit for various health issues. Um, but uh, I did, I went to a bunch of working class schools um, th- this year, and it was great, and the conversations were great. And I was, you know, I, I, I felt somewhat more optimistic about things. And then I did a talk at, um, uh, at where, where, where was it? Haverford. Haverford, yeah. Um, and I Which was- Which is in, uh, outside Philadelphia. Uh, outside of Philadelphia. And I just left horrified because, and I got to talk to some of these students more on an individual basis. And of course, unsurprising to me as a first generation student, it was some of the most vocal were the international students being kind of like, listen, I'm, I don't know where the landmines are. I don't know what the upper class ideas of like what we're allowed to talk about. Um, and then, you know, students on the uh, student press, uh, it just sounded like a really viper, like a, a, a situation where if you step out of line, you are a pariah and you are, you are a pariah right away. And the thing I just had to remind them of is I know that you think this is very sort of progressive, but you're actually acting like Victorians. Like this is extreme. This is an extremely conformist um, an, an environment. And I actually wrote a piece reminding the campus about this, which is mm-hmm. the danger of dissent to, to students who want to talk. Yeah. Exactly right. The minute you step out, you are a pariah. The minute you question this prevailing, prevailing progressive wisdom, you're a pariah. And I deal with this all the time from, again, what I had mentioned earlier in 2016, the students who wanted to support Clinton, mm-hmm. they were deemed pariahs. Yes. They felt threatened. They were concerned for their safety. But it, it extends even further. I have uh, students who, who are gay. Some of them are out publicly. Some of them are not. I have conversations with them. And they've been attacked for not being allied enough, for not being progressive enough. Uh, because if you don't put certain uh, facets about your sexuality out on the table immediately, you're not viewed as being a serious supporter, and therefore you're a pariah as well. This is dangerous as all get out for teaching. This is dangerous uh, socially, uh, but you know the, the, this is a dangerous exercise for higher education generally. This, these are becoming places and spaces of, of, of violence, intimidation, and and becoming the antithesis of what we're supposed to be in higher ed, which is cauldrons of ideas, debate, discourse, and argument uh, with the understanding that that makes ideas better and stronger. So where do we go from here? How do you fix that? Is it Do you need strong leadership? Is that the answer? Because uh, the president of Sarah Lawrence College, Crystal Collins Judd, you said she was a bit tepid in her response there in October when the op-ed first came Putting out. But, yeah, but later with the demand, she said uh, the she she pointed out the inappropriateness of demands related to the work and tenure of one of our faculty members. Didn't mention. I still by think name, that but. was a very tepid. She she didn't make a full throated defense of what it should have been. She she had plenty of opportunity to do it. She failed to do it because I think she didn't want to do it. I think she did it because she knew if she didn't. The pressure externally would have been a disaster for her. I think she knew she had to, but I think that was a weak defense. uh, Well, there's nothing in her history that suggested she would have. So Fire actually had a run-in with this president in April of 2009 when she was the dean for academic affairs at Bowdoin College. And there was a professor, Jonathan Goldstein, who did a lot of the same things that you did, which was point out problems at the university through his research. He had an interest in the intersection between academics and athletics on campus. So he did a study of 
how an emphasis on athletics might manifest itself in an increase or decline in the academic rigor at the university. And he presented this research to students and potential students on campus, to which uh, he received significant condemnation from uh, Crystal Collins Judd, including charges of harassment, of violations of the college policies. There were claims that his research was shoddy and that he was put through, I think, two separate panels uh, to defend his research and defend his actions and fire had to come to, to his defense. And unfortunately, he did end up being censured. But it's the same. It's, this, it's parallel facts here. Just instead of talking about the political diversity of faculty or of administrators, he's talking about the value or lack thereof of an emphasis in athletics on a college campus. So uh, I can't comment on any great detail my case at the moment, other than to say that very similar tactics were taken at, at, at Sarah Lawrence by this president, and it, and it was very clear that she had uh, done this before. Uh, which I, you know, it was it was it was so clearly thought out, and it, it appeared as if, you know, there was no hesitation. You know, she she clearly knew what she was doing, and I'm I'm frustrated because. A real serious conversation about what's happening, what's going on, is what should have occurred, and it didn't. Uh, as for you know, where do we place the blame, or more importantly, how to flip that? How do we move things forward? Uh, you know, it, it's appealing at first to say, well, we need a strong president. Uh, I'm not so sure I like that as an answer, though. Uh, I think about a, a wonderful uh, piece that was in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago about Bard College and uh, its president there, President Botstein. And it made the claim uh, that because uh, President Botstein is a larger-than-life figure and is so strong and, and confident that any sort of disruption a la Sarah Lawrence would not be tolerated. It's just against the school's values. Uh, I had personally no problem with that. I, I think that's a, a wonderful thing. But the problem is the, that, you know, and I teach leadership studies, I teach presidential politics. I, so I spend a lot of time looking at, is it a personality issue? Is it an institutional issue? And so on. While I have absolutely, again, no problem with President Botstein doing that, uh, not every school can have a President Botstein and not every school should have a President Botstein. And, you know, he has a unique personality. It's been very effective for quite a few years. But what happens if it's a personality in a direction that people don't like? And what if you're at Bard and there are faculty and students who find him overbearing at some points? So what, what do I like and what would I like to see? I'd like to see ideas of free speech and viewpoint diversity and ideological diversity enshrined more clearly, more succinctly, and, and, and more uh, explicitly. And I, I wrote a piece uh, just last week in Inside Higher Ed where I, I basically said, let the faculty run the university. And I don't actually mean we want to let faculty run a university. That's a very, very bad idea. Uh, we're not trained to do that. We're not good necessarily at administrative tasks. We make things far too complicated. We fight too much about uh, points that no one really cares about. You don't about. want to play the bursar. Um, right. We don't want to do that. But when it comes to things like orientation, when it comes to things like uh, thinking about who – is coming to our school, uh, meaning uh, ad admissions committees, when it's about speech policies and recognizing that if we're going to have residential education departments, I'm not saying we shouldn't have those, but they should not operate independently from the faculty. If res ed is going to be a significant portion of our, st our students' educational experience, and it certainly was when I was at Stanford, we had faculty oversight. There was actually one faculty member who was involved in this, and, and we worked with uh, that, that professor uh, very, very uh, regularly. This sort of faculty oversight uh, and, and, and discourse may not be perfect, but it sure could make a huge difference because what we're trying to do as faculty, again, as promoters of truth, is different than what, to, uh, as Greg pointed out earlier, what the mission and goal of administrators are, which is the duty to care. Duty of care is a form of therapy, and I want to be the first person to say uh, I, I adore therapy. It's, been, it's changed my life, uh, and I think we have a very similar story about <laughs> CBD and how that's helped. Uh, so I, I don't want anyone to think, oh, I just am scared or don't like therapy. I disagree. You know, I've had therapy for year and a half or so, I have to check the exact dates, but uh, it's been a wonderful uh, experience. Um, not related to necessarily this stuff, but just generally. And, uh, you know, those goals are different than the goals of being a, a teacher. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I think faculty need to get more involved and stop being so concerned with being in the ivory tower and talking to a small, narrow audience of other elite academics. We're there to teach. This is, we're, we're at a critical point here because universities... Uh, are not liked by a lot of people, especially on the right. 
Uh, universities are closing left and right. People are questioning, should we go to universities? And even progressive thinkers are saying, why waste your time at a university? Let's, let's, you know, here's an idea. Uh, if I'm Peter Thiel, I'm going to throw money at the ideas and, and say, screw that. Let's do coding. We don't necessarily need to read the great thinkers. We don't need to necessarily understand the humanistic uh, world. Uh, and, and, and that's critical for us. And we're going to lose too much if we don't have it. So this is the, the piece was intended to be a call to faculty saying, we need to step up. We need to take control over this before it's too late. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So what I was just writing down was the fact that I, I hear a lot of pessimism about uh, about campuses. And I understand it, obviously, because, you know, fire is 20 years old this year and I've seen the worst of the worst my entire career. But I do sometimes get frustrated by uh, particularly um, about the sense of pessimism when I, when I feel like a lot of alumni, for example, and trustees haven't even asked for, for basic things from university presidents. Now, I'm very skeptical sure. of university presidents. I've seen the worst of them. And the five things I recommended was, first of all, tell them don't break the law, um, recommit, pre-commit, do something like the Chicago Statement. Sure. And this would be appointing faculty to do this. Um, stand up and defend uh, your, your faculty and students right away. That's the one thing that I've seen um, that a president really can do that that's very good. And they and they, they and I think sometimes they think they're not going to get any support if they do that. It's going to be all downside. But I've seen a lot of cases that where it's been gone the right way that presidents have actually seen oh a positive reinforcement after they do that. Yeah, University of the Arts with Camille Paglia, yes, the president yeah, came out vociferous yeah. right out of the gate. Stop the case right of, there. Yeah, it stopped. The, and this is what should have happened at Sarah Lawrence. That's what it should, should be happening. Everywhere and it's not absolutely and um, the orientation that we talk about, but that's also putting it back in the hands sure. of faculty. I love. I hadn't actually thought of the faculty oversight of all res ed. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Um, I'm going to incorporate that into what I collect. And and then then my fifth one is like, okay, you know, Mr. Mr. President, you know, collect some data on this stuff. Um, have someone who is in, somewhat independent uh, survey your own, find out what the climate is like. Um, you have the power to do all this stuff. So I'm, I'm, and incidentally, many schools already have this. Uh, UCLA does this uh -huh. for many, many schools around the country. They actually have at the Higher Education Research Institute a faculty survey that goes out every year. That's the basis for a lot of the research on faculty that I've done. So the schools have that individual data already. They could use it. The yeah. question is, are they choosing to yeah. use it? And the answer is most likely not. Yep. But they could use it. But again, it requires uh, a certain level of strength by the president and, yeah. and, the, and the people around him or her. And you have to wonder, are the people around him or her you know, reinforcing this or, or, or trying to protect their own jobs. And I'm definitely, yeah, I do think a lot of the problem comes from faculty giving up. It's the whole fall of the faculty theory, essentially. The faculty have given up to admit this more of an administrative university. Look, I mean, there are so many faculty or people who have PhDs, rather, around the country who are looking for work. Yeah. Let's start hiring some of them instead of, of, of master's degree level uh, people. If you take a look at some of my data on this, th these are largely uh, people who are late Gen Xers and early millennials who have... Uh, who have not done education beyond the master's degree. Remember, master's degrees are wonderful degrees, but they're not intended to teach you the same way uh, or th with the same training you get as a PhD student. Uh, let's, you know, if, we, if we're going to grow the administration and we're going to grow the bureaucracy, let's be more s candid and careful with who we're picking to, to serve in, in, in these sorts of roles. Uh, and I understand it's somewhat amorphous, but schools can individually decide where they want to target this. So at, at a place like Sarah Lawrence, with its Res Ed program, we could say, look, you know, we're going to think about Res Ed and the sort of programming we're going to put on. We're going to have five meetings a year, you know, let the people who are uh, administrators do that, but, you know, make the presentation to the faculty, make the presentation to a small committee and we'll talk it out and we'll say, is this getting everything we need to get at? Is this balanced? Is this fair? And and then people should respond to it. Having that dialogue, I don't think is asking too much. And it's kind of funny because I know one of the reasons why they'd be uncomfortable doing that is if you actually teach people to be as as curious and disruptive and interesting as we as an academic would want them to be, they might be a little harder to you know so to speak rule. Yes. <laughs> but you got to prepare the administrators yes. the fact that yeah, like this is probably going to lead to some. Um, tears and some arguments o over stuff, but that in retrospect, for some of us who have had those experiences, might be might be hard at the time, but some of the best memories of their Absolutely. lives later on. Absolutely. So, Professor Abrams, you're heading back to campus uh, in the fall semester. Yes. What are you expecting when you get there? Uh, so, I'm expecting to teach my freshman. Uh, actually, I can't say freshman. We don't like that. That's first a, year. A first year studies uh, course on uh, the American dream. Uh, I'm actually going to open with my uh, former AI colleague's book uh, about Love Thy Enemies uh, because I want, uh, I want the students to understand that where we're coming from is, is, a position, is a position of empathy and a position of open-mindedness. And I'll probably spend the first two to three weeks talking about epistemology. How do we learn? How do we deal with these uncomfortable situations? And then we're going to jump right into it. And uh, I've crafted the course to be as 
holistic as I can, where I try to focus on the American dream for as many people in as many perspectives as possible. Uh, I make it very clear from day one that if you think your position isn't represented, tell me. Let's try to do something about that. Being in New York is a wonderful place to teach because so many different narratives about the American dream are in our backyard. So we're going to do that. We're going to either speak with people on campus or go to see them in, in, in New York, uh, whether it's uh, you know going to see the Statue of Liberty, whether it's the uh, Lower East Side to the Tenement Museum to understand the, the Jewish American uh, position, or if we're going to do an interpretive tour of the West Village and, and, and Stonewall to understand that version of the American dream for the gay rights revolution. So my goal is, is to be, quite frankly, do exactly what I've always done, which is try to bring as much balance into the classroom. And uh, I, I always hand out plaques uh, with different pronouns because I certainly respect that uh, from uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, which says everyone's entitled to his, her, their, whatever, own opinion, but not his, her, their own facts. How do we establish fact? And then how do we build opinion uh, around that? Uh, I, I'm expecting some hostility from the students. Uh, I'm expecting people who are, are going to look for trouble are going to try to create some trouble. Presumably, they will not be my actual students. But, you know, uh, this is not my first time teaching. I have been in this business a while. I can certainly handle myself. Uh, and I expect it to be uh, uncomfortable. But this is a fight, as I said before, that's too important to have. And, uh, you know, walking away from it wouldn't be a, a great idea. Certainly not right now. Yeah, and, and my plans are to uh, move up to Sarah Lawrence and sit in for this class. <laughs> Please do that. Have you on? We'd love just, to have you. Just kidding, but, but that sounds like a fabulous class. They're fun. I mean, that's yeah. actually the beauty of these liberal arts colleges. Uh, we're small. We don't have the traditional Stanford-style courses, which, by the way, as an alum who's proud of it, boring for the most part. But it, it, you know, the Sarah Lawrence thing gives you a chance to create dynamic, interesting classes and, and cross. And one thing I should say to, to the listeners is that I have become a political historian, sort of, I guess I would say a political history junkie. I fetishized it because one of the big problems in higher ed that is leading to this sort of animosity is students just don't know history. They have no oh, context. God, yeah. They cannot understand what's going on vis-a-vis any time earlier. They just have no idea. So trying to contextualize it, trying to understand that history is critical and crucial. And uh, this is not stuff I trained in. I trained uh, in graduate school to be an empirical methodologist, to be a theorist, uh, and, and to study things like Congress. I, I now teach the presidency and American political history. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people say, do, do you like being in a place like Sarah Lawrence? Well, being able to sort of change and, and retool is thrilling. And, and this is an example of, of that. I think it's going to be a challenge. I think it's going to be tough, but I have no regrets that this has worked out the way that it has simply because the needle has moved. I mean, from groups like Heterodox to various uh, trustees, I've been in contact with over 100 boards of trustees around the country about issues like this. People are hearing it. They know there's a problem. It's going to take some time to, to get there. But the the fact is, I'm eternally grateful that the New York Times published you know these two pieces that uh, about higher ed that I put together because it again has shown a very strong light on what's going on on this new on this institution of administrators, and then has catalyzed conversation about saying how do we do more with it and groups like Fire are instrumental to that. Yeah, well, we'll keep watching, and uh, Greg will see you on campus, I guess, in the <laughs> fall semester. Uh, Professor Samuel Abrams, thanks for coming on the show, and Greg, thanks for coming back to the show. Absolutely. Glad, thanks for glad having to me. Be back. That was Professor Samuel Abrams. He is a professor of politics at Sarah Lawrence College and the author of a New York Times op-ed called Think Professors Are Liberal, Try School Administrators. And that was Greg Lukianoff. He's the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights Education and author of the New York Times bestselling Coddling of the American Mind, due out in paperback August 20th. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We want to hear your feedback about the show. If you have any questions, please email them to so to speak at thefire.org. And if you liked this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. They help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I hope you're enjoying your summer, and thanks again for listening.